Welcome to MedCast, the podcast from MedChi, the Maryland State Medical Society. Each episode, we'll be doing a deep dive into medicine and taking an insider's view on issues facing Maryland's physicians and patients and healthcare more broadly. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Rockauer. Today, my guest is Dr. Tuesday Cook, a bariatric surgeon in Montgomery County. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Cook. Thank you for having me, Dr. Rockauer. I'm so glad to uh, be with you. We've known each other for quite a few years. I think we could even be on a first name basis uh, on this. <laughs> I think so. I think that would make it a lot more um, up our alley, so to speak. That's fine. So we'll start with a few basic uh, questions of uh, background and uh, where you came from. So tell me something about where you grew up and where you went to medical school and did your training and what kind of practice you're doing now. Sure, so I actually was born in Brooklyn, New York at a hospital that actually no longer exists and lived in Brooklyn all the way up until my preteens. Um, after that, I was I went to Trinidad and Tobago. I actually lived on multiple islands, but I lived in Trinidad and Tobago throughout um, my preteen all the way up until college, so through high school. Um, and that's where my family is from. So I really did learn a lot about my culture and my heritage and you know our foods and carnival. And um, they're very, very strict about education there. So I went to a convent, which was run by nuns, which I'm sure many people don't know. Um, and then I came back up here for college. I was at Pace University um, in New York because they gave me scholarship money and, you know, I worked three jobs to help pay for my tuition. And then I went to medical school in Washington, D.C. Um, and so that's why I moved down here um, at Howard University College of Medicine and subsequently um, stayed there at Howard University Hospital to complete a general surgery program. And subsequent to that, I did a fellowship in minimally invasive surgery and bariatric surgery at Penn State in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and then came back to the area because my husband had moved down here during my chief year of residency, and he probably would have strangled me if I didn't move back to the area. And so um, he moved here from New York, and we've been here ever since. So I've been in Maryland for more than 20 years um, and have worked doing minimally invasive surgery on you know, gastric cancer, colon cancer. I did thyroids when I first came out. I did breast cancers, et cetera. Um, but really, um, over the past maybe 15 years, really honed in on doing, you know, bariatric surgery and minimally invasive foregut surgery, which is really my passion. Okay. Talk a little bit about bariatric surgery and what it involves and who the patients are and what kind of issues you're dealing with. Oh, Oh, absolutely. You know, I could wax poetic about this. So I'll, I'll try to keep it brief, but bariatric surgery is a series of operations that we have in our armamentarium to perform for patients who suffer from the, um, the medical problem that is obesity. And so for patients who have obesity with a, a BMI of 35 or greater with multiple medical problems, usually things like hypertension, type 2 diabetes, high cholesterol, um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, osteoarthritis, heartburn, um, joint pains, et cetera. People who have these medical problems, or even with a BMI of 40 with no med medical problems at all, they benefit from weight loss surgery because we have hormones that change once we do these operations, which is why it's now and has been called metabolic and bariatric surgery for years, uh, more than a decade. Um, and so we do these operations to help patients lose weight um, and help to resolve their, meta 
their metabolic issues. So bariatric surgery for me is it's it's really powerful because I see patients who come to see me who are walking with wheeled walkers or immobile and in wheelchairs or you know even walking well, but you know when I, when they lose their hundred pounds or their hundred and fifty pounds and I see them afterwards and they're off their type two diabetes medications or they're off their blood pressure medications or you know they're not taking high cholesterol medication anymore they don't have sleep apnea anymore they they feel like they're more alive and more energetic for me it's it's quite rewarding um to know that i played a part in that and and i say a part because it's not a magic pill so the the bariatric surgery definitely helps with changes in you know glp1 and peptide yy etc but um the patients really are the people putting in the work and it's a lifelong journey for them and so i play a part in performing the operation but they truly are the people who put in the work with regards to behavior modification, dietary modification, and exercising um, to use their operation to affect the changes that happen to improve their health. And as an orthopedic surgeon, I appreciate the bariatric surgeons because these people come to me with their knee pain, their hip pain, they can't walk, and they've got a BMI of 35, 40, et cetera, et cetera, and I don't really want to operate on them. So I need people like you to get their weight down to a better level so then I can then go and get them out of out of that other type of pain, you know, from their joints. So we really appreciate you and we appreciate your whole um, specialty and, and approach. Well, I'm um, thankful for that. Thank you. <laughs> thanks, and, and thanks for saying the patients. It's, it's really, it's really amazing. It's really amazing when you when you see them. They, they like they have a whole new life, and they they say it. They, yeah, they and and, and, so and we work together to be able to do that because Absolutely. you know you get them to a point where I can take care of them, and and we work together to get people moving, and uh, that's the whole purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me something. You know, do people have any problems uh, with you as a female physician? You know, it's it's funny that you mentioned that. I actually have, um, I have had patients, and I, I remember one specific patient, this was in 2019, so it wasn't that long ago, who um, who refused to have me as her surgeon. She came in with some free air under the diaphragm, and for people listening, for, for a surgeon, free air under the diaphragm makes us, makes us very, very worried that there's some perforated viscous or some opening in the bowel um, something that needs to be taken care of before the patient gets really sick. And um, despite that, she saw me. I was in an area that um, didn't have very many um, women physicians or women surgeons for that matter, and definitely didn't have any black physicians. Um, and she looked at me and said, nope, you can't be you can't be a surgeon. Um, and so I would rather, you know, leave the hospital than have you operate on me. And, you know, because I had encountered patients of this nature before, <clears throat> I, you know, took it on the chin and still explained to her exactly what, you know, I found on her physical exam, what I found on her CT scan findings, you know, her story based on the people that lived with her, her labs, et cetera. I went through exactly what I would go through with any other patient and, you know, still offered her what I would offer any other patient based on the information that we had. And then I explained to her and I wanted to make sure she understood exactly um, what we were dealing with and the severity of, um, the issue and you know she still refused and you know that was it that, that was it, I did as much as I could um for a patient and so you know I had to let her make her choice because one thing patients have is choice um and sometimes you know we think it's not the wisest choice but the, that's the patient's right <laughs> and so I um 
allowed her to to not have surgery, but I made sure to explain it to her and her caretakers, and of course document that this is what was offered. And so um, I actually have been, even during residency, have been you know looked at and asked why I'm in a particular area of the nursing station or the the front desk, um, even in the operating room. You know they might ask me if I'm the new nurse. Um, when I go into a patient's room, especially in Northern Virginia, sad to say, uh, they would tell me that they were waiting for the doctor to come um, and talk to them <laughs> about their procedures. And so it's been an interesting ride. One that is not surprising to me anymore, but it is somewhat disheartening sometimes when you think that we're in 2022. And this, you know, this, I haven't been out of, in, of training that long. Um, I will say on the flip side that there are some patients that seek me out because I am a female and because I am black. Um, and because, you know, I'm from the Caribbean and I'm, you know, from the U.S. So they, they find things that they um, like that we have in common. And that makes them that much more, um, it makes me a little bit more endeared to them, I guess. Um, because <clears throat> generally people do like to see patients, you know, see like, pardon me. Generally people do like to see a doctor um, with whom they may have something in common or they think may relate to them on another level besides just being their doctor. Um, and we know that the studies exist, you know, the studies that say that uh, babies, you know, black babies born in the NICU, if they're taking care of a black um, pediatric ICU doc, that they fare better. Um, and we know about the patient physician concordance papers that show it as well. And so, you know, it, 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 it could go one way or another, but, you know, because we're only 13% of the population, um, it, it it needs to, we need to have a little bit more I think in terms of understanding intersectionality and how it relates to patient care um, and even how as physicians we can make sure that patients feel comfortable seeing us no matter you know what we are but I definitely have had some interesting um, interesting experiences as a black female physician uh, that is and, and surgeon at that <laughs> yes uh, I can imagine the, the the trust of the patients for their doctors whether they identify with them as another female or uh, as a you know physician of color uh, that makes a, a a significant difference. I know people like to you know to know speak the same language, so to speak, even mm -hmm. if they're all speaking mm -hmm. English. Um, Absolutely, it, absolutely. You know what's funny, Rocky? It's what's funny is I'll even have some people who are Jewish but from Brooklyn come and see me. Uh, because they know, you know, we know about the, the Fidelis, we know about taking the, the train, we know about, you know, Erasmus High School up the street from where I grew up. So it's people really do like to feel like you understand them not only with their medical problems, but them as a person. Have you have you found any problems relating to administration of hospitals or in your training program, uh, either as a female or as a, a black person? Um, or, or even in the doctor community as a whole? Um, I, I, I will say that I, I have had some instances, um, you know, that have come up that, that relate to sometimes all of those things and sometimes just one of those things. You know, for the most part um, now, I think as people become more aware that, um, that things, you know, people are more open to asking questions and learning um, about um, me, who, who might be a little bit different to their usual colleague, um, but but I will say, you know, even during residency, um, and this was during my chief year, um, I had a program director 
because I was rotating at an outside institution, <clears throat> call me into his office and tell me that the um, my fellow residents and um, I think some of the students were nervous around me because I didn't smile enough. Um, they had no complaints oh. about my work. You know, I came in at four o'clock to round. Um, I wrote excellent notes. You know, the different attendings would ask me to come into their to their cases, you know, specifically ask me even if I wasn't on their team. So it didn't have anything to do with my performance, but rather that I guess I wasn't perhaps girly enough for them. Um, wow. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't, you know, ladylike enough. And, you know, my mom is a lady who is all about wearing her lipstick and her pearls and her heels. Um, but, you know, I don't wear heels when it comes to the operating though I have, you know. I probably shouldn't even say that I have, but you know, when it comes to being a surgeon, I'm a surgeon. And so I asked him whether I should wear a skirt in the operating room as well. And he didn't have much to comment about that, but it was, it was eye opening for me and so upsetting at that time. Now that I look back at it, I'm like, you know, I can't even, I can't even worry about people and the insecurities, but it was upsetting to me at the time because I knew that I was working hard, putting in the time, you know, the, the patients seemed to really like me. And so it, it, it felt like um, the people were focusing on the wrong thing. I, I completely agree and, with you. And uh, one of the things that is often spoken about is the microaggressions that happen on a daily basis. And, and that certainly is one of them. Absolutely. It, it is. It's, it, and there's so many, um, again, there's so many studies about microaggressions. There need to be more. And I think the, the ones that we know are really the ones that are coming out more, most recently, but, you know, People who suffer from these microaggressions, especially in academic institutions, they don't get, you know, put forward for tenure. You know, they don't get the grants. They don't get the increased salaries, despite them doing the work and sometimes even more work um, because of the you know, physical characteristics or attributes of their culture, et cetera. They don't fare as well as people who are in the majority. Wow. And that can actually affect your mental health as well. I can completely agree with that and can understand. Funding for this podcast has been made possible by the Medical Mutual Liability Insurance Company of Maryland. Since 1975, they've been dedicated to providing the most aggressive defense of practices and reputations while providing affordable and comprehensive coverage. Get the insurance coverages you need to keep your medical practice safe. Visit www.mmlis.com for details. Funding for this broadcast has been made possible by iPrescribe. Plus your prescription pad. Now there's a safe and easy way to prescribe any drug from your smartphone while you're away from the office. The app also includes access to your patient's medical history, state PDMP, clinical alerts, and more. Visit iprescribe.com to learn more. Welcome back to MedCast, the podcast from MedKai, the Maryland State Medical Society. We're continuing our discussion with Dr. Tuesday Cook as she discusses bariatric surgery and the IDEA Task Force. And, and that's going to bring us to um, the IDEA Task Force that you and I work with in uh, at MedKai. Um, speak a little bit about that and the things that we've been doing and uh, where we might be able to go. So the IDEA Task Force of MedKai um, is a task force that was put together in 2020, and it was it was the brainchild of our then um, 
President was it Michelle Manahan, um, an absolutely an ally, and it really, um, you know, it it was something that she put forward for us to be able to develop, um, you know, different strategies to unite physicians in Maryland to promote, you know, inclusion, diversity, equity, uh, and, and empowerment, which is really what IDEA stands for, um, throughout advocacy in healthcare, and that's not only for our patients for whom we advocate all the time. Um, well, some of us, you know, many of us advocate all the time, but also for our disenfranchised patients who may need a little bit more advocacy. Also for our colleagues for whom we should advocate, um, who may be the only person of color in a room where not many leaders are people of color, um, just in healthcare in Maryland in general, to kind of bring us to a place where we are taking care of the patients and the physicians um, in a way that's necessary to advance healthcare for everyone. Um, you know, we, we've done a lot of things, I think, from the time we started to now, you know, we, we're trying to increase diversity in the healthcare workforce, you know, create um, and get support through the legislation for enhanced health education programs, you know, starting early, from as early as, you know, elementary school, um, and get people to move up through mentorship, and not only mentorship, because sometimes people will say, you know, that people are over-mentored, but even sponsorship so that you know people will put their money where their mouth is to get um, those um, persons who are otherwise overlooked um, into positions that they will do well in you know comprehensive behavioral health we're working on because we know that mental health is something that plagues our entire society but for people who are disenfranchised um, again they are overlooked more than um, than others um, what else have we done you know we talked about i want to say hospital hospital systems to establish a chief health equity officer position, you know, that would be funded to enable these um, hospital administrations to have someone who can help guide them to, again, coming into the year 2022 so that they could. Yes, that, that was one of the things mm -hmm. that we got put in is to have hospitals have a diversity office or leader. I'm not sure exactly how we stand, how we uh, put it, but it, it's something that's going to go through the hospital systems um, so that somebody is looking out for these things and trying to correct the problems Absolutely. that have been there. Absolutely. And it's going to be useful. It's a useful resource for all hospitals to have because this is something that can fall through the, the cracks, so to speak. Um, and something that should not, it's something that should be at the forefront of everyone's mind um, when considering leadership, when considering initiatives, when considering um, the next phase for a hospital to advance. Um, you definitely have to take into account um, the people that you serve and the people who can help you with the people that you serve. Um, you know, there's, I mean, I, I hate to bring up money, but there's a Harvard Business Journal, Harvard Business Review Journal article that talks about even, you know, the improvement in, in um, financial returns when you have a diverse workforce. Um, and you can't just make it diverse and put people on there and say, okay, you know, you're here. You have to listen to what they say. You have to, you know, incorporate their ideas um, and be open and willing to listen to it. So I think, I think that that probably is one of the best things that we um, worked on with the chief health equity officer. And, you know, I, I look forward to that moving on and moving forward. Yeah. In, in, in orthopedics, at least on a national level, uh, they have a uh, program called Speak Up Ortho, um, where uh, people who have been 
consciously or unconsciously discriminated against or subject to microaggressions, et cetera, et cetera, have an outlet to be able to speak um, and in a confidential way uh, to get things off their chest and be able to uh, discuss with other people. So maybe in the general surgery community, that may be something as well that can uh, Absolutely. I wouldn't be surprised happen. if the American College of Surgeons doesn't have something like that in, in play. But let me tell you how important that is. Think about being the only person of color in a room of people who um, are used to being able to speak freely without um, blowback, are not ever classified as the angry black woman, are not ever classified as the problem or aggressive or um, a troublemaker um, who, you know, to be able to put forward your idea and not have it, you know, <laughs> explained by someone else and then that person be given the credit. <laughs> It's it, it's it's a lot. Well, I don't I don't want to be the one. <laughs> I don't want to be the one to be accused no, of man explaining no, you. So that's me. okay. So, you know, but but everyone is not. You know, everyone's not me. You know, and, and for the most part, I don't like confrontation, and many people don't. Um, but sometimes, if you are out outnumbered, it's it's difficult to have your to have your your voice heard, um, especially when you know people will talk over you or kind of just you know poo-poo what you're saying and, and move on because it doesn't carry much weight. So the fact that you all have that program, Rocky, I think is great because it does give, you know, a forum for people to speak about it and, and not fear um, retribution. Yes. You, you spoke earlier about uh, mentors. Uh, what are some of the best advice you've gotten from a mentor during your training? Um, I have to think about that for a moment. So I've had some some really excellent mentors. I've got to tell you, one of the reasons I stayed at Howard after I was there for my four years of medical school, you know, I interviewed at 13 other places across the country for general surgery and decided to remain where I was in DC at Howard because I was with some of the um, top black surgeons in the United States who had been, many of them, first in their field. Um, and so, you know, I was mentored by people like um, Dr. Wayne Frederick, Dr. Terrence Fulham, Dr. LaSalle de La Fall, Dr. Clive O'Callender. Yes, I knew him. Yeah. I knew him. Um, and, you know, Dr. Deborah Ford, the, these people were really not only crazy intelligent, but understood what it was to be a black surgeon in the United States. And they understood it in a time where they had it much, much harder than I had it. And so th though they never really spoke too much about that, they did grill me to make sure that I could be the best surgeon, no matter where I was or who I was with. And that I think is what um, drives me even to this day. But I will say that some advice I got, and this is from Dr. Clive O'Callender was, um, and it seems so simple and, you know, I'm sure somebody has it up on Instagram somewhere, but he was like, you know, you can't be, you can't be anybody other than who you are. Um, and you know, again, it sounds really simple. And I think that many times I, you know, I would try to be, try to be the person who's a little quiet or the person who, you know, stands back and just listens. And I've, I've worked at developing those skills to become a better listener, but I really am a person who, um, if I see something is wrong, I, I'm going to say it. Um, and I'm learning better ways to say it. But but I can't, it's it's hard okay. for me to not um to not speak up and speak out. 
That's your Brooklyn it, background. It must be. And, and, you know, you throw the Caribbean <laughs> fire in there and, um, and uh-huh. it, it makes it hard to squash. Now, he also was quite a fiery transplant surgeon. Um, and he developed MOTEP, which was a minority organ transplant um, organization. And he still, you know, heads that up. And it's, you know, we do the most, he does the most um, 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 fundraising, et cetera, for minority organ transplants. Because, you know, we, we're, we're hit with um, you know, type 2 diabetes and, and kidney disease, et cetera, more than any other population. But he was very fiery. And he, I think he realized that I was trying to squash my fire and, um, and he would not have any of it. So, so I thought that was pretty, pretty good. And then, you know, um, I've had other mentors also in surgery tell me to, um, um, you know, all the things I get involved in and happily get involved in them, they, you know, they say still to, you know, try to pace, pace myself. Um, Okay, well, that's great. Well, let's switch gears a little bit and ask some of the uh, standard questions that we've been asking all of our uh, panelists or uh, invitees. what would you be doing if you were not a physician? Hmm. So if I was not a physician, I would likely be a kindergarten through second grade teacher. Um, <laughs> I think that's my plan for when I retire. Um, I don't know okay. if I'm going to go back and get a master's in education, but I like little kids um, and I like teaching. Um, so that's actually something I'd likely be doing. And I'll, I say all that, you know, we're homeschooling our daughter this year. Um, and you know, it can be, it can be tough, but she's, she's really intelligent. So she, she learns a lot on her own. So I'm probably spoiled, <laughs> but I've been planning to be a <laughs> kindergarten teacher when I retire for a very long time, I think since med school. Um, so I, I, I'd probably be that I'd probably be a kindergarten teacher. Okay. What are you currently reading or watching or listening to? So let's see. So I'm a big, um, so though we have a million books all over our house, um, because I commute to work in the car, you know, f- quite a bit and, um, you know, sometimes I'm waiting for cases to start, et cetera. I'm big on audiobooks. Um, and so I actually just finished uh, reading Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents by Isabel Wilkerson. Um, mm-hmm. And before that, I think I was reading Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. I mean, both excellent books. I love Malcolm Gladwell. You know, he's amazing to me. I've read at least four or five of his books. Um, As yeah, have yeah he's, he, he's, I mean, you know, he came, he came to GW the other day. What was that? No, that's not the other day. That was like two years ago, but I missed it. I didn't get the tickets to go, but I definitely would have gone. Um, and then I just started, um, how will you measure your life? Um, I forget the name of that author. I just started that book maybe a day or two ago. His name is Clayton M. Christensen. Okay. I think he was at the, it was a Harvard business review um, book. I want to say he's a professor at, at Harvard, but I just, I just started reading okay. that because I'm, you know, my birthday just passed and I'm trying to, reevaluate oh, which i think birthday. you should i think you should reevaluate your life around your birthday and probably every three to mm-hmm. five years and so i i a, a colleague actually one of my old mentors at howard um who is currently the president of the university um mentioned that this was a book that i should read he mentioned it years ago but i just picked it up now to read okay if you could change one thing in the world what would it be oh gosh rocky <laughs> <laughs> just one <laughs> um we'll start with that i don't like it that's a hard one that's like a miss america pageant question oh you know, I want world peace. you know i don't um if i could change just one thing in the world um i would make things fair i realized that i would make things fair mm-hmm. um 
even when I was little, and I realized my daughter has it too, and I'm not sure what it has to do with us, but we like things to be equal and fair. Um, and I think that that would help a lot. Now, everybody's version of fairness is different, um, but the, the health inequities we see, the financial inequities we see, the hunger, you know, in the world, people are dying more now from obesity than from hunger. But the fact that we still have mm. hungry people, especially in the United States and in, you know, other developed countries and even in places that should be, you know, that had amazing resources before they were ravaged by um, the West. I feel like nobody should be hungry, especially little kids. So um, it, I, I think I would like things, I would want things to be fair. Everybody have something to eat. You know, everybody have enough. You know, it's not always about how hard you work and how much you work. It really isn't. Some people really have a lot of luck. Oh, that wasn't that was a Malcolm Gladwell book. Remember that one? Okay. The Outliers. Yes. <laughs> you know, there's so many things that go into it that I'm happy for those things to exist, but I'd like things to be fair. Okay, well, I think it would it would also it would even help with you know the injustices that happen to people of color. You know, if things are fair, then um then we'd all get it. We'd all have bad things. We'd all have good things happen to us. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. <laughs> I really want to thank Dr. Tuesday Cook, who has been our guest here on MedCast, the podcast from MedKai, the Maryland State Medical Society. Tune in next time as we continue our conversations with the leaders of medicine in Maryland to discuss the issues facing physicians and our patients. For all of us here at MedKai, I'm Dr. Stephen Rockauer. Thank you and goodbye.